Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Tony. And this is Making It in Asheville. A podcast where the two of us typically sit down with an Asheville local, learn about what they're making and how they are making it in Asheville. And today we're super excited. We are wrapping up the season with a final, final, final season one bonus episode. Uh, we have pulled all of our favorite sound bites from each of the interviews from season one. And we're going to be sharing those with you today, talking a little bit about why we love them. Uh, and this is, you know, just a really cool episode to kind of get a sense of the entire season. I feel like we've come a long way. We've talked to some really exciting people, um, and this is going to be a fun way to highlight all of those conversations. Yes, for sure. And uh, before we begin, just a reminder that we will be having a uh, giveaway. We're going to tell you a little bit more about it towards the end of the episode, um, but it's going to be a sort of a countdown giveaway until we launch season two next week. Fun. Cool. So um, there was a little bit of a theme that we noticed in this season one. Uh, Sarah, how are we describing this theme? Yeah, well, uh, you said something not too long ago, which was, you know, the common theme with all of our makers here was just start. Mm. Like all of these people had a curiosity or had this gut feeling and there was no magic answer of like, here's how you do it. It was honestly just to start, just start making it. And I think this is really timely for um, our own journey as well. Yeah, and it it seems like almost anyone that you talk to that's doing something interesting had um, you. And when you ask the questions, you almost always ask, "Was there a defining moment?" Um, and I, I think in hindsight, people can identify it typically, but moving forward, sometimes it's just uh, no, there wasn't anything specific that happened. I just chose to start. And so we really want to champion that and, and share some of the stories of our interviewees from season one, um, highlight some of those moments that we were able to capture in the podcast and unpack them where we can, where it's helpful. Yeah. Um, this is a really great episode if you maybe have only listened to one or two interviews or if you haven't listened to any of the interviews, this will give you a really nice overview of who we talk to, um, what kind of work they're in and, you know, tell you maybe which episodes you might be more interested in learning more about. Exactly. Yes. And so uh, with that, do I have permission to dive into our very first interview? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So episode three on this podcast was with John Hopple. Um, and that was our first actual interview. And so John Hopple was one of the first people that we actually met while visiting Asheville and considering if we were going to move here. Um, John Hopple runs an Airbnb out of the basement of his uh, out of his out of his home in East West Asheville, and John is the sweetest heart. Yes, he is. He really, really is. Um, but I mean, I thought this was a really interesting interview. We were super interested in learning more about. Um, the Airbnb process, particularly in Asheville, because, you know, there's some tricky laws that you have to really consider when you run an Airbnb out of here. Um, but John really just like explained it to us in a really simple way. And I think his motivation for doing it was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, you don't necessarily need to be the savviest uh, entrepreneur 
to realize that real estate in Asheville is doing some really interesting stuff. And um, so for a million reasons, I thought that this episode was just a good kind of primer on things to think about if you're thinking about owning and kind of doing a short-term rental in a property. Mm -hmm. So you want to dive in and see what we chose as a soundbite? Yeah, let's hear it. Cool. From time to time, I would look at bed and breakfast. What I quickly realized was that Asheville is, you know, whether it's a business or a, or a, a home is very expensive or quite expensive. And at least to us. And so a business was going to be out of the question pretty quickly, especially because with a bed and breakfast, that would kind of require Claire to be all on board as well. Mm. Most bed and breakfast in the area run on a couple's sweat equity. They can't mm. afford to employ many people. So this is not necessarily Claire's dream to, that, to work in hospitality, to, to have a bed and breakfast. So um, that quickly kind of like narrowed and said, okay, well, what, what would be maybe another way to, for me to work in this arena but not go all in? And that's where the uh, live and work kind of situation mm-hmm. began to emerge. And a friend of mine um, was doing the similar thing. And so I was able to kind of learn from him. And so we started looking at, for places where we could rent part, live in part, and have kind of a, an experience of like, all right, I'm basically a janitor is my, my day to day is basically like cleaning, doing laundry. Um, I already love to cook. So I, I cook, you know, I cook and shop for us and that kind of thing. It's not going to be exactly like having a bed and breakfast would be, but it'll give you a pretty good picture of the elements Mm -hmm. that you would expect. So right now we're able to kind of feel it out and see if we want to go deeper into it. Either that means buy another property, perhaps outside of the city where the regulations are less stringent. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, it's just great because it's it's at a pace that feels doable. Mm-hmm. It's not overwhelming, but it's enough. It's enough of an experience that you feel like you're going to take something away from it. Yeah, I, I really love that clip. So um, if, if you couldn't quite catch that, John, basically his dream was to start a bed and breakfast. And when they move, him and his wife moved to Asheville, uh, he quickly realized that that was quite ambitious of a dream. And so they ended up scaling back a little bit and instead have started with an Airbnb as a way to sort of test the waters, understand if this is really what he wants to do um, and, and kind of just start in a fast and easier way. Yeah, and I think that that is a completely transferable lesson because no matter what your idea of the dream life or dream role or dream business thing could be a good idea is to get a taste of it as quickly as you can uh, as close to the real thing as possible and so what uh, John did was he you know he realized that uh, knowing that his wife wouldn't want to be all in uh, and build a bed and breakfast with them, he, they figured out a smaller version of that. And so still a 
pretty large step, all things considered, as far as the many types of businesses that you could start. Um, but really exciting and a really, I think, great soundbite to capture um, just John's kind of like really relaxed energy um, and and thoughtfulness. Agreed. Yeah. So our next soundbite comes from Gilly Roberts. Gilly is the founder of Wear, which is a sustainable uh, lifestyle retail shop in downtown Asheville. Um, Gilly started this shop when she was just 26 years old, and she has a really, really inspiring story of of sort of the, her gumption to, to get started and just sort of go for it, even if all the pieces weren't perfectly in place seems like the biggest roadblock ever and something that could have been the thing you would, I don't know, lament into your old age is I was going to open a store and it was going to be great. And then my, you know, my good friend backed out yeah. and I never opened it. And, you know, I could have, and I, I, I could see that being this thing that could have festered forever. Yeah. How did you in that moment say, well, I've come too far to not try or what, what was it that made you say, okay, well, there's still ways to do this. Uh, it is that I am someone who compulsively follows up on the things that they say they're going to do, uh, for better or for worse. I think it works in a professional sense. It can be kind of exhausting in a personal sense. And I had told so many people and myself that I was going to do it at that point that it was genuinely never occurred to me to not. Hmm. It was just part of the, it was just now I had to figure out what my role looked like without another person. And so in that soundbite, what we jumped into was that Gilly had a very kind of built out plan that she had communicated with a number of people about starting a business with her good friend and then the friend backed out. And that would be a great opportunity for almost anyone to just kind of stop and say, okay, well, it didn't work out. Um, and what we're highlighting here is that uh, things are going to come up that fundamentally change what you thought was the plan. And the best thing you can do is just keep moving. Yeah, and, and I also really loved that she was like, you know, I told other people about mm-hmm. it. I had already made this commitment not only to myself but to the the outside world to do it and that if I don't do it, I'm, you know, going to feel like I failed in some sort of way. So I think that's that's actually a great tactic to kind of push yourself to do something is to share what it is that you're working on so that if you don't follow up on it, you know, there's some accountability there. Exactly. Having a team of folks around that you respect and like appreciate and who will keep you accountable is, you know, two thumbs way up, four thumbs way up from us. Yeah. Cool. The third interview in the season was with Derek Harry. Uh, He is the chef de cuisine at one of our favorite restaurants in town, Rhubarb. Um, And Derek's episode is a fan favorite. Uh, He's got great energy and a really wild story of like living in Alaska for a long time, figuring out uh, cooking. He He started out as a dishwasher, I have to say, um, which they had, he called it a a swamper or something like Mm -hmm. that. And he started out as a dishwasher and, you know, over the years has worked his way up 
um, through working many different roles in the kitchen and now as, you know, the head chef of this wonderful restaurant in town. Um, but yeah, his, his enthusiasm uh, and his sort of like, I don't really care what other people think, I'm going to just do this attitude is really, really fun and really, really interesting. I love this soundbite that we're about to share. I think it's so funny, mm-hmm. and but also so powerful at the same time. So let's hop in. And I went in for the interview, and it was like, you know, they were going to bring me on as a prep cook, and they were like, and we can get you trained. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, I can do this. Um, and they called Eric as my reference, and Eric told them, you can have him, but he's mine in May. And because he said that, Joanne Asher gave me that job at Saks Cafe. And Saks is like, Saks is legendary fine dining. It's closed now because Joanne retired. She owned several restaurants by the time she retired. But she brought, you know, fine dining and California cuisine to Alaska. Her and I believe the Marx Brothers were like the two first restaurants. And at 21, to be working at Saks as a chef in town, like, other chefs knew that I, like, it was like, like, I could say I worked at Saks, and people were like, oh, cool, like, this guy can cook. And it was like culinary school for me. I'll never, ever forget it. I was my first day, I walked in, and they're like, you know, this is Jeff, this is the guy you're training with, and I was like, cool. And I was like, hi, I'm Derek, you know, and I blah, 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 we do the introductions. And he's like, uh... He goes, can you, make, can you make chutney? And I was like, yeah, I can make a chutney. He's like, all right, I need a chutney for pork. I was like, cool, where's the recipe book? And he looked at me, he goes, I ain't no recipe book. Make it look good, make it taste good. And I was just like, I, I remember just being like scared shitless. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, like, I, can, I can just cook whatever I want. And like going to the dry storage area and just being so overwhelmed. And it became this... An episode of Chop. I was gonna say it's like <laughs> it's a cooking ev- show where yeah. they, you know, you get, gotta go get your ingredients and. <clears throat> I would, make it. Uh, I would take my. So we didn't do like family meal like a lot of restaurants do, because uh, the restaurant was small. So they would just sort of like cook up stuff for each. Like maybe one night somebody would make spaghetti, or, or like a lot of times what happens is everybody cooked for themselves. Mm-hmm. Really. And like I wanted to get better at doing stuff at, on the line, so I could switch from being a prep cook to a line cook. So I started taking home raw ingredients. And learning to cook them at home. Like, I learned how to cook scallops at home because mm-hmm. of that. Like, I learned how to sear and render duck breasts. Both, both dishes off saute because I wanted to work saute because that was the cool station. And, like, I, I taught myself how to make risotto at home by doing that. And I would just pack up all my ingredients raw and I would take them home and it would be, like, 1130 at night and I'd be in the kitchen cooking up scallops or duck breasts or... And so I know that this is, you know, he's talking a lot about cooking and, and working in the kitchen, but I really do think that this applies to just about anybody in their life, especially when you're just starting out your own project or your own business. Um, there is no recipe book. There is nobody telling you what to do, how to how to do it, where to go to find the resources that you need. It's all about figuring it out. And I, I love the way Derek just sort of like, went head on and was like, all right, I'm going to make this mango chutney. I'm going to, you know, bring home all the ingredients to practice making risotto at home. And he just sort of tackled it recipe by recipe. Yeah. And he's got, I mean, if you listen to the rest of the episode, he's got very big goals as a chef and as a, you know, a future restaurateur. But what stands out for me in the soundbite is that at that stage, his vision 
was very kind of like acute. It was, I want to get to the saute station. And how do I get there? Not how do I own a bunch of restaurants? It's how do I get to the next step? And he did the things he needed to do to get there. I love that. Yeah, I, I love that too. Practice a little bit every day. A little bit every day. Especially if you're able to do that while you know, on somebody else's payroll. I think that's a really compelling thing. Bring some work home, get better every day, every night. Awesome. Our next interview was with Nikki Sherpa. And that was episode seven on the season. And Nikki is our wedding planner. Yeah, we love Nikki. She is just so down to earth and real and calm. Like we, we were talking, you know, to her about in the next soundbite that we're going to share, we were talking to her about how she knew what she wanted to do. And honestly, her answer is just like so straightforward and clear that it just seems like she just followed her gut and like just did it with no questions asked which is really how she operates as a wedding planner as well she just sort of gets stuff done methodically and doesn't really ever show any sort of anxiety or you know freaking outness which is what you want in a wedding planner that's exactly what you want in a wedding planner she has done a incredible job keeping sarah calm and that makes me very happy so let's (laughs) let's dive in and listen I know that you started in college doing events, right? And then, but why is it important? Like, it's one thing to to have a college job and it's one thing to be like, okay, I have competency in the operations thing maybe. And it's another thing to be like, I am going, this is going to be it. Like, this is the thing. And I'm wondering. I think it took me a little while to know that this was my thing. Because at first it was just like, this is what I'm doing until I have, my degree or whatever and then I got it for substance abuse therapy and like applied for some jobs and I was like this is not what I want to do I like the rush and like the busyness of events I love having to like think on my feet and figure out the problems without anyone knowing that there are problems Um, I like the personal interactions with each couple every wedding is so different and having that every weekend where it's a whole new thing a whole new idea Um, it's so creative that's why I like it Um, The relationships are really important to me. Um, So slowly, I think I decided, like, oh, this is what I want to do. Okay. And so then at that point when you were like, this is what I want to do, how did you go from from working for someone else to opening the business? Like, what were the steps that you actually um, took to do it? So when we first opened, I guess it was, like, 2016, we were starting out as just like the in-house wedding planning company for Homewood, the place that I was their venue manager originally. And we did all their weddings there. It was great. But as we grew, it was mostly by word of mouth, honestly, like other couples who got married there told their cousin or their friend or whoever. So we started branching out and doing weddings anywhere. Um, And now I would say like we're still there, but we have maybe just as many everywhere else at this point. And I guess, you know, to be the super tactical, right? Was it because order of operations sometimes matters and sometimes Mm -hmm. doesn't like, were you just, okay, so now I'm a business and you can use me as a business or did you, you know, Google secretary of state, North Carolina, LLC, am I a partnership? What are we going to be like? Um, I mean, I think that 
setting up a business in North Carolina, first of all, is not very straightforward. Our government does not do a very good job on that. Um, so I Googled it a lot. I did a lot of research. We originally were an LLC for the first year. And then I had an accountant tell me, like, oh, actually, you should be a corporation instead. So we transferred over to that. Um, our accountant's amazing. He helps with all of those kind of details. But it was a slow process to make sure, like, little questions like, do I charge sales tax? Or am I charging my client the right way? Or what kind of contract do I need? Like, those are things I've never done before. So I had to get all of those processes in order. And I've definitely, like, adjusted the contract a ton of times in the past three years and set up systems and then decided, oh, the system isn't the way I like it. We're going to go this way instead. Um, so being someone who's never been on the business side before, I was always on the front ends, like, running the events. I wasn't in the back doing the accounting. Um, that was an interesting way of learning it. So what stands out for me in this little soundbite is how Nikki didn't need to see perfectly into the future to continue moving forward, right? She pretty much, in my interpretation, followed a curiosity. She's like, I enjoy this thing. What happens if I do more of this thing? I, I, I like the critical thinking. I like the excitement. Um, and, I, you know, it's okay to follow curiosity into professions, careers that you didn't dream of when you were seven. I think that's really exciting because she's fantastic at what she does. And uh, if you listen to the whole episode, you know, it was sort of just, I think it just started as a college job to pay some bills, to make some money, and then all of a sudden became a much bigger thing. A little bit of background. I mean, she started working with another event space first and got a lot of experience and from that she ended up seeing where they were missing out on opportunities or where maybe they needed more help and where she could branch out into Mm -hmm. and fill that niche which I I also thought was really interesting Um, you know this idea of like starting somewhere and then seeing where you can take it and make it your own thing is a really cool way to start a business yeah and it's it I, I think it's saying yes to the thing that is making you interested and then attempting to be of your highest form of value once you have a sense of what's going on. And so uh, after a while, you can see gaps and opportunities and step into them and fulfill a need that no one else is fulfilling. Love it. Yeah. It's a um, one of the metaphors that I think stands out about that soundbite for me is the idea of you know, you, you can still drive a car in fog, right? You only need to see a little bit in front of you to continue driving. Uh, and I think a lot about business and a lot about, you know, uh, follow, pursuing curiosity is like driving in fog. And um, you don't need to see perfectly down in the future to have a really exciting time. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I agree. So our next interview uh, soundbite is with Sarah Hooker. Sarah Hooker is a photographer in Asheville. Uh, She specializes in business branding photography as well as boudoir photography. And the soundbite that we're going to share talks a little bit about how she got started and and why, you know, this idea of going to school for what you want to learn is not always, you know, 
the only route to get into what you love doing. What are the differences from a major in photography or minor in photography and running a a photography business? That's good. Um, So my school specifically was more of a fine art photography school. um, And that meant that we took a lot of pictures of old buildings and things like that and not necessarily the things that are helping me pay my bills today, um, which is mostly taking pictures of people. Um, And in college, I was actually, I'm such a big introvert, and I was scared to take pictures of people. So unless we were forced to for an assignment, I was taking pictures of anything else, anything other than people. Um, And so... After college, when I was like, I would like to make money with my photography, I had to kind of teach myself how to pose people and work with people, which is such a huge part of what I'm doing now. Um, and yeah, all the, <laughs> all the business aspects, those were hard to learn too. I did, so after college, I didn't go right into photography because I wasn't quite brave enough. Um, but I did like 5 million other jobs. I did real estate for a while. I worked at a grocery store. I worked with, um, developmentally disabled individuals and, um, I worked doing social media for a company. I was an operations manager for a company. So I learned a lot of those skills on the way that I didn't learn, um, in college. And, Honestly, you don't need a degree to do photography. Um, It was helpful to me. Like I said, I was such an introvert and maybe not as bold as I would have liked back then. So it was good for me to build my confidence. Um, But you can absolutely learn what you need to do just by honestly practicing a lot um, and be, you know, trying new things with photography. Wow, amazing. Like you've so many jobs. It's incredible. <laughs> like I'm over here not like, even all of them. Yeah. So many. Oh my gosh. We'll list them in the show notes. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so then when you you went through all these different jobs and I imagine you were taking photos while working in these other jobs as well. And I mean, how did you get into okay, I'm gonna start a business called Sarah Hooker Photography and it's my own thing? Um, it was a really slow start. You know, I think I started off and I was like charging like $20 for a photo shoot and you get all your images and, uh, I'm so happy to the people who like took a chance on me and like paid me to do their photos early on, um, before I had much experience. And honestly, i I was not doing everything I should have been probably with like having my business together and, you know, organized and, um, getting my taxes totally right from the beginning and everything. So, you know, I, I, and I think that's one of the scarier things for people who start yeah. a photography business. Cause like you're an artist and you don't want to think about those things. You just want to go and create awesome photographs. Um, so I started off very part-time and doing it while I was doing other jobs. And I was lucky to have a job, um, several years ago where they let me go more part-time. So I went more and more part-time as I built my business, which was so nice to be able to do. And if you can do it that way, it's a great way to do it 
but yeah. I know not everyone has the luxury. So you have to super hustle in your off time or take a big chance and quit your job, um, which are hard things. And so in that episode, we get a lot out of Sarah Hooker. And the first part that stands out is that it's a very different thing in almost every single business, um, you know, starting a business and becoming a professional than it is studying the craft. And so what I really liked about that soundbite is that she talks about how her education in the topic has served her, right? So she, if, if you listen to the whole podcast, you know she learned all of the technical skills necessary to be a decent photographer, but the stuff that she needs in her business she learned after school. And so that was how to pose people. That was how to actually charge a, enough money to make it a real viable business. Um, and those types of things aren't typically taught in traditional education. Um, and so I am all in on practice. I think that uh, if there's a craft, a skill, a trade, a, a business you want to start, you could and should be practicing as much as possible, but at the end of the day, to turn that trade or skill set into a business, you're going to need to learn new things. And the only way sometimes to learn those things is to start. Yeah. And I also really loved that she, you know, said, Hey, when I started out, like I didn't know how to do my taxes, right? I wasn't, I wasn't doing that perfectly. You know, I, I hadn't figured out the contracts and how that was supposed to be done, but I started and I, I started with a few clients and, and, you know, they took a chance on me and I got the experience and then she made it better as time went on. And for me, that's really important uh, just because I am a little bit of a perfectionist. And so I like everything to kind of be in order before I begin, but what I'm learning more and more is that sometimes you just got to put it out, even if it's really ugly and scrappy and start somewhere. Beautiful. Our next guest is PJ Jackson. So episode nine of this season was our sixth interview. Uh, PJ is one of the owners of the Chop Shop Butchery, uh, which is right down the street from us. They also uh, are now at one of our clients in, in our marketing business. And uh, this interview was lengthy and was, I think, very informative. There was, we talked about a lot of things with PJ. Um, his story is, is, I find, relatively fascinating from, um, you know, growing up and having a butcher experience, like a local neighborhood butcher um, and, you know, processing deer as a child, but he doesn't, you know, assign any of that real value in how he ended up being a butcher and a butcher shop owner. Um, and so the soundbite that, that we're going to cut to is not necessarily how he trained to become a butcher or his story so much as um, really, really sound advice for people who are trying to learn Learn more about meat and where it comes from. Learn, honestly, anything, but definitely about, explicitly about meat and right. where it comes yeah. from. Yeah. So let's dive in. I was visiting a friend in Orlando this past winter, and 
he wanted he wanted to go get steaks and cook his steaks for dinner. We were the guests in his home, and such a nice thing. The last thing I want to do is eat a steak when I'm in Florida. Um, <laughs> uh, and he goes to there's a butcher shop down there that unfortunately was closed, so we went to their uh, supermarket, um, Publix. And uh, he immediately walks up to the open cases, the styrofoam trays with the saran wrap over the top and kind of starts shuffling through the steaks. And he's like, eh, I don't really see what I was looking for. I'm like, what do you want? He's like, I just, I wanted like three fillets that were all the same size because I'm terrible at cooking and I need them all to be finished at the same time. I'm like, cool, man. I was like, why don't you ask? He said, what do you mean? Go over to the counter and ask that lady back there, hey, do you have a filet that you could cut me? And he did. And her face lit up, and she looked happy as could be. And she tied on a fresh apron and steeled her knife and did it right there in front of us and wrapped them up herself. And I could tell, I was like, man, we take that for granted. Um, and from a customer point of view, when's the last time I bought meat <laughs> over a counter? Um, I loved it. I love somebody doing what I asked for him to do with a, with a particular care. Showed it to us. How's that look? You know, it's like, that's great. So I, maybe grocery stores are still doing that. And people are so used to staring at their phones and not interacting with people or their Jacksonville, Vermont butcher store whistling guy or the lady that sells the corn at WNC you know, in the summertime, we don't know those people anymore. We can just go over and look at a cellophane wrap thing and get our stuff and leave. You might not even have to say anything to anybody. You don't even have to talk to the cashier anymore. You check yourself out. By the way, that's a ripoff. We should pay less for that. <laughs> that and they're not paying uh, income tax anymore on it either. So they're not right. really kicking back. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> Round two. <laughs> I love that. Just just communicate with the guys on the other side of the counter. I mean, I know that this is talking about buying food and buying meat, but it's so true with so many other things. Like, just ask someone. You know, we're, we live in a world where we can look up so much information online, and, and that's great. You can find a lot of great free resources there. But sometimes the quickest way and the most valuable way is just asking someone that already knows how to do it. Um, I know that this kind of, in a day-to-day example, happens when, like, we can't figure out how to use a particular software or app. I'll be on the website scrolling through all the help questions and the FAQs, and I can't find what I'm looking for. And Tony's just like, just contact their support team. That's what they're there for. And I do. And it's so much faster and, and so much more helpful and, and easier. Oh, I mean, yes, full stop. Yes. But also it's, in my opinion, it's the conversations. It's the real time, you know, in-person communication that uh, for most people will be the difference makers in their business. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we have a lot of conversations with folks about uh, what might be the best thing for them and for their business. And I think a lot of people look to what I would say is downstream, like, Oh, what do I got to do on social or how do I run a promotion? And 
almost always the best thing for a business is to talk to people on the other side of the counter. So in that, in this example, you would be the butcher. And it should be your goal to have as many meaningful conversations with folks who come by your counter as possible. So it works in both ways, right? If, yeah. if you want to learn something, just ask some questions, talk to people who know. Um, your enthusiasm, curiosity could be the thing that makes you their apprentice, makes you their mentee, um, m or just makes you memorable, which is its own benefit. Uh, and then if you are in a position of trying to sell things and, and create ex you know, explicit value, it's conversation-based. It's, it's by having conversations with people. Yeah, I agree. That's a great resource. Awesome. So our next interview is with Melissa Gray. You probably know her as uh, Cakes by Gray. She is a, a cake artist in Asheville. She makes really, really cool, beautiful, funky, crazy, amazing cakes, um, primarily for events and weddings. She is our cake artist for our wedding that's yes. just a couple weeks away at this point. I know, I know. And it's so funny because she makes like such cool, creative cakes. And we ordered like the most basic, simple cake. She's probably just like, oh, uh, this is so boring. But at least it'll be easy. So Yeah, I would, I mean, without, oh man, I don't want to say, if you can pretend that, if you're actually getting married, definitely definitely talk to Melissa Gray and do a tasting. If you're not, you should still try and do a tasting. It was so fun and crazy and just Uber home. That was one of the primary takeaways and one of the lessons in the episode. Uh, but the real lesson of the episode we'll cut to now. Like then what happened? Was it like people just started calling you or like you already had They d No, definitely not. They, um, people started calling I gave away a lot of free cake, I'm not going to lie, which I think most entrepreneurs do when they first start out their business. Um, you got to prove yourself. And I definitely did not get into bridal. It was about two years in before I was able to get into bridal. You know, your wedding's a big day. There's a lot of money involved, and it only happens once. And there's a lot of emotion behind it and a lot of anxiety for some people. So you don't just show up one day on the scene and I'm like, hey, I'm going to be your you know, your cake artist for your wedding, that's not happening. So for a solid two years, I gave away a lot of cake. I say give away, but let's just say under, undercharged. <laughs> it's a better, yeah. better term for that. Yeah. Um, but you do, you have to prove yourself like anything. You don't walk in and become CEO on day one of a company. You work your way up. So that's what we did. So um, that happened and it was just promoting on Facebook, which thank God, say what you want about Facebook. It's an excellent tool for you know, promotion, it's definitely, you know, it's worlds away from how it used to be. Like, you know, I don't know anyone who takes out print ads anymore. No. That's not true. I do know people that take yeah. out print ads, but I don't read print ads. Personally, I don't read print ads. So um, I just I don't think it's the way of the world anymore. It's definitely more digital. So it just um, gave me a platform to get my mm -hmm. name out there. And um, so that happened. And then... I slowly started getting into the wedding industry, and here we are two years later. And so the standout parts there to me are that sometimes when you get started, you just need customers 
and you need to wow customers and you need to use all the free resources you can to start telling your story and start showing what you got. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, it seems like she she spent a lot of time just sort of getting the kinks out. I'm like, all right, I'm going to make cakes. And, and she, you know, she was a chef before. She worked at um, several different restaurants around Asheville. So it's not like she didn't know at all what she was doing. But um, I'm sure that there was a lot of that. You know, during that time, there was a lot of working out, you know, this ordering process and oh my gosh, can I make a five-tier cake? I have no idea if that's a thing. But, <laughs> you know, I imagine there, a lot of those questions came up and, and it gave her time to kind of figure it out before, you know, she became like this super well-known cake artist in Asheville. Yeah, and, you know, she I like that she explained what she meant by giving away uh, because with that tells me is that even when she was getting started she was still charging people and I think that anyone who wants to be in a uh, true career and like profession uh, getting comfortable selling the thing Mm, yeah even if even if you know that it's not making you money or not priced uh, to what the market would allow for I swear by charging people yeah that's that is a muscle that we we need to learn to grow and flex and um and there's only one way to do it and it's by doing it yeah yeah I love that from from her and and Sarah Hooker who was like I charged twenty dollars a photo shoot you know which is nothing but it gave her the reps yep and that's what it's all about so the next interview uh, episode 12 of the season was with Kara Candler uh, she runs TikTok Concierge, and uh, she was the first guest to show up with a gift for us. And I just noticed that it was a candle, and her last name's Candler. Maybe it's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Tony's always on the lookout for puns, even if they're unintended puns or coincidences. But yeah, I mean, Kara, gosh, she is such a like go-getter and just natural businesswoman. Um it was really, really cool to interview her and understand how she got started, which, you know, didn't start with like, I'm going to open a luxury concierge service, you know, where I go to people's homes and help them with all these different kinds of things. It started out with something really, really simple. So simple that like a teenager from high school could probably start doing it. Let's listen. Uh, how long ago was this? How did you decide? Wow. This is uh so... Interestingly enough, we started in 2013 officially. Um, I grew up in Asheville and had a house and pet sitting business. <laughs> Sounds so cheesy telling you guys this story. Had a house and pet sitting business. Um, I, and I, what I found is it grew and I ended up having people come work for me. And then every summer just kind of brought more people on. And I was realizing that clients were asking us to do things outside of house and pet sitting. So could you go to the grocery store and get a few items before we come home? Could you get our dry cleaning? So I was like, there's a whole other business here. And it stuck in my head and stayed there for quite a few years. I'd say like it kind of just kept rising back up like years after college. And then I was like, there's a business. Asheville's getting busier Um, everybody's lives are completely slammed here, whether they're working or just want more leisure time. So, um, I started while I had a corporate job and 
it just kind of, I moonlighted for a few years and then took the jump and left my corporate job and that's wow. been it. Yeah. So. And when did the corporate jump happen? Let's see. Um, two and a half years ago. Wow. So, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It was, uh, I actually hadn't planned to leave still. I was like on the fence, like chickening out every time I went to go do it. And, um, the Huffington post did a series called when to jump and they featured us uh, like a video feature and told the story. And I was like, okay, well this is going to be out there real soon. So, <laughs> like no pressure. I quit my job. So it was kind of like the push I needed to, to leave. Whoa. So, yeah. I literally cried in my house for like three days after I quit my job and was like, get it together. Like, yeah. Up and down with emotion yeah. was like, okay, you just got to make this happen. So, so it started out with a house and pet sitting business. I think that is so cool. You know, there was like this, we, she started off just offering this one really simple service and then realized that people were asking for other things and then decided that she would serve on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit of what we pulled out of the Nikki Sherba episode, mm-hmm. which is, you know, put yourself in a position where you're scratching an itch, something that was, you know, uh, you were interested in that curiosity brought you to. And then figure out where the place to be of most services. And um, so I think the soundbite here is sometimes listening to customers is the way to know what to do in your business. Um, And you can't listen to customers unless you have them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She built up a clientele just from doing one type of service and then it just sort of grew and and to this whole other company and idea yeah and so she's got um teams in all sorts of different cities now uh in the southeast and she's growing it seems like all the time uh and that started by dog sitting in Asheville. yeah so um nothing is silly (laughs) Like, like, especially as a service, uh, if, if someone, if someone does it, you have an opportunity to, to, to do it for them and charge them. There is value to be provided everywhere. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So our next little soundbite is from Phoebe and Christian. Um, they are a couple, a sort of a tag team duo in Asheville. Um, who are two cocktail experts, cocktail historians, if you will. Yeah, they, they call themselves bartenders, but we can't do that. Yeah, to no, they're, they're more than bartenders. They are like walking books about... Encyclopedia. Cocktails. Uh, yeah, yeah and it's so, incredible. And so the episode we had with them was loaded with interesting sound bites and interesting moments about um, their story, their projects, uh, and how one might either build their own bar or make really great ice. But the soundbite that we're using for this is something around, you know, how and why they found themselves in Asheville. And I I think it's actually really compelling and really interesting. And we'll unpack it after we hear it. Why do you think people have moved? Like, what is what's kind of the difference between Philadelphia and here, for example? Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, um, in my personal opinion, and I could, I am prepared to be wrong about this, but you know, and, and there are some exceptions, uh, but uh, you know, there are some people who are doing some really great things in bars and restaurants in Philly, and it's 
you know, and I don't want to take away from that at all because it's definitely happening and it's definitely awesome. Yeah, it's um, a great city. And, we and some it. of our dear friends are doing some really great things there. Um, so it's not that there isn't anything cool happening. There is. Uh, but if you're trying to start something up that no one's ever seen before and you don't have your own backing and you're seeking backing, that's where it gets a little challenging because a lot of people who are looking to do something in Philly with their money in the restaurant business, you know, in the, in the hospitality business, they'll look at a block and be like, Oh look, there's two pizza places there. I guess that's a good block to have a pizza place. Let's open a third. Let's open a third. Got it. As opposed to looking at the hole in the market, you know, looking at something that's being underserved in an area. Um, and that's obviously not a hard and fast rule, but it's something that we kind of came up against in terms of, you know, putting forward an idea and just kind of crickets unless it was something that was a proven commodity. Yeah. Right. And to some extent, that's just, that's just the business. what investment is about yeah. is, you know, people want to make a conservative, you know, like investment, but. And, and like then you, said, and you can find it anywhere, but it's just, it was one of those things where we were kind of outgrowing where we were in the business in terms of our, like, I don't know what you want to call it, stature or position within the business. We were kind of outgrowing it. It was starting to feel like, um, like a, a skin that was getting too tight and you need to kind of shed it in order to, you know, uh, but there were also a lot of things that we kind of left on the table too. Like there were a lot of things that we wanted to do there that we haven't yet accomplished and that we might yet go back and do. Um, but it just felt like a moment to kind of break out. And what we're hearing in this little soundbite is how when you want to start a project, sometimes you're going to want people to be bought in and supporting that idea from day one. And uh, there's a lot of things that uh, can affect the your ability to, to actually start a business, start a project, one of them is capital. And so um, not that I know a ton or that we know a ton about uh, getting capital in Asheville yet. Um, we've had some, you know, the next episode, we, we hear a little bit about that um, with Mountain BizWorks. But the, the theme, I think, that stands out is that if you want to start something new, it is helpful to already have an audience or customers, right? So it's not necessarily said explicitly there, but building up a community, building up um, awareness of who you are, what you do, how you work is always an asset when it comes to starting something. Yeah, and, and I think this ends up sort of manifesting itself in, in present tense now um, for Phoebe and Christian because they just opened a speakeasy bar behind the Devil's Crown. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I'm going to say it anyways. Yeah. Um, called Pink Moon Bar, and we went to the soft opening uh, last week, and it was packed with you know friends, family, other people from the industry that people that they have met over the years through various jobs, bartending and working at other restaurants. And, mm-hmm. and I think having that that audience and having that support network has helped them to make this, you know, little project a, a reality for them. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really 
Powerful. For sure. So if you have a dream, a goal, a vision, a thing that you want to achieve, uh, even if it doesn't mean that you're breaking ground on the project today, connections and relationships and showing who you are, how you work, uh, the type of commitment you bring to projects is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they have their hands in a ton of different projects around Asheville. Um, and that is all supported by the soundbite, in my opinion. Yeah, cool. yeah. And I'll just add one more thing, mm-hmm. which is um, a few weeks ago, we posted a blog post called Show Your Work, uh, which you know really isn't a new idea. This is kind of the concept from Austin Cleon. Um, this the steel like an artist book guy. He also wrote a book called Show Your Work, um, but, but sort of showing your work by starting small, by just putting stuff out there, even if it's not perfect, by building connections and building an audience. Uh, again, even if it's not perfect, can set you up later on when you are ready to finally sell something to people. Totally, it's a long game. Yeah, love yeah. it. True. Uh, our final interview of season one was with uh, the owner and creator of Bada Bastu, Andrew Neelig. Yeah. So Bada Bastu is a new concept to Asheville. It's a hot, cold therapy spa. Um, I think they identify as a Nordic spa. But the idea is that you go in and you set like 15 minutes in a hot sauna and then you take a cold plunge and then just has like this amazing effect on your mental state and your physical state um tony and i have done it a couple of times now Mm -hmm. we love it we've committed to going every month um but but i think it's really interesting andrew's story of how he even came across this as an idea um it it was kind of a haphazard thing i I guess i want to say it it wasn't like he grew up saying i want to open a spa this an idea that kind of came to him during another you know event of his life. I'm very curious to know what the inspiration was for starting this. Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, really it was either I build this at my house or I build a company. And I got into it because a good friend of mine who I played high school sports with, we reconnected when I moved back to San Francisco. Um, And he struggled with like TMJ. Um, He had had a couple of concussions and and he also had like yeah just just a number of problems right not sleeping well you know and then that leads to like a little bit of mood instability and um also just like less patience Mm -hmm. all those things are just um symptoms of a problem but when you have a problem just like chronic pain, right? Like you have chronic back pain, then you're unhealthy in your head. Um, you feel uncomfortable and irritable. And then, you know, that begets you, you know, maybe using something else or mm-hmm. doing something else that's unhealthy to try and combat that issue, right? So it's just like a problem that carries down the road. So he was doing this and and um, I was talking to him. I was playing ice hockey and street hockey in San Francisco has this badass um, street hockey league. It's pretty intense. And, um, I've never been more sore in my life, you know, as a 29 year old playing with a bunch of ex pros on, on asphalt and like a kid's gym area beating the crap out of each other. And then I'd go home so sore, like my legs just killed. Um, and he was like, why don't you try cold water 
fats, you know, to see about recovery on that, like inflammation and stuff. And, you know, on other things, like um, I struggled with mood instability a little bit when I was younger. Um, That's part of my story for sure. Like I quit drinking seven years ago and, you know, that's right around the time I quit drinking. And then maybe a year and a half later, I I found cold therapy. Um, And then we moved into an apartment complex that happened to have a pool that was unheated in San Francisco. So it was like 55 degrees most of the time. And then one day I found this little window in a wall downstairs on this crazy split level building. It's like an old school motel converted into a hotel. And I mean, converted to an apartment complex, but it was a sauna and I had no idea it was there. Like for the first four months we lived there and then opened it up. It was pretty dirty, cleaned it out hmm. and turned it on and it worked. So I had like a sauna and a cold plunge all of a sudden in my life every day. Um, and then I started hanging out in there with like a friend of mine who lived in the building and then just got more and more and more into it. And really after the first 30 days, I did cold water therapy. Like my friend challenged me to do that. I was pretty convinced that there was something to it definitely for inflammation right if nothing else inflammation and then you know and then i come to find out like i didn't feel so moody you know 60 days later or something like that as i was still doing it so yeah that that's really how i found it and so this sound bite to me highlights the idea that sometimes serendipity plays a huge role in what eventually will become a business, a livelihood, a profession, a career. Yeah, I, I think serendipity and, and also this idea of he had a problem, right? He his, he was sore from playing ice ho- or street hockey, mm-hmm. ice hockey, one of those. Um, and he didn't want to feel sore anymore. He had uh, some mood you know, instability issues and he wanted to solve for those. And it, the solution ended up being what he made his business out of. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, you know, when you see that, oh, I have a problem and I want to find a solution for it, you realize that there are so many other people out there that have the same problem and, and also want that solution for it. So by sort of scratching your own itch, to use Tony's words, or solving your own problem or filling your own niche, you can oftentimes fill a whole tribe of people's you know, needs. And as a business, right? So the, it opens with, I was either going to build this thing in my house or I was going to build a business. Um, and as a business owner, he, he, if you listen to the whole episode, he has, at one point he says, this is the most aligned with a business that I've ever felt. And so he's had other uh, endeavors and, and projects that he's launched, some that he sold and some that he's, I guess, let go. Um, but when you build something because it fulfills a need that you have, there's a connection to the product, the service, the business that it, it becomes so powerful because you can communicate with customers in a way that you can only communicate when you actually also are a fan believer uh, who has gone through that same process. You know, we, I, a couple times this season, the idea of like the four hour work week and Tim Ferriss has come up and a 
thing about you know building a muse business, which is a business that makes you money, uh, but isn't necessarily where your heart and soul and passion lives, is that when when the tough you know when tough times come up, how in how emotionally invested are you going to be mm. in solving the problems? Uh, how compelling can you be in marketing and sales when you're not, you don't just care that much? And so for certain people, it is a damn near prerequisite that they are working on a business that scratches their own itch. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I think we've also talked a lot about the idea of you know, the difference between an entrepreneur and maybe a business owner mm-hmm. is that an entrepreneur oftentimes is setting out to build the business and then sell it, mm-hmm. uh, whereas a business owner is really investing in it um, and, and intends to be there for the long run. Just sure. a distinction that made reminded me that yeah. I was reminded of. Yeah, it, it, I think that's completely true. And so... Uh, no matter how you show up, building a business either as a small business and a and you know to be a small business owner and to work in your business and and love the craft and the passion, or building it to sell and be an you know an entrepreneur. The best way to build a business is that you are invested in it emotionally. You understand the space. You understand what a new customer might be thinking or wondering and the best way to do that scratching your own edge. Yeah. Love that. Cool. Uh, so that was season one interviews. Um, we had a couple extra in there. Uh, we're not talking about them today, but they're, uh, they were just us chatting. And I mean, we use the idea of get started for this, uh, review episode, bonus episode. And I got to say, I'm just so thankful we got started, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, I think, oh gosh, there's so many things. Like we started this podcast and this project because we were scratching our own itch in a way. Um, And we really wanted to learn about other people in Nashville and how they're making it because everyone was telling us, you know, bring your own job. Um, And so we were just really curious to know, like, wait a minute, how are other people building their own business um, and doing it in Asheville without maybe working for somebody else or, or, or building their own, you know, side projects and working on their own creative uh, ideas and expanding upon them. So it's been so much fun, like meeting all of these people and learning. Every time we interview someone, it's like this jolt of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've just learned so much from everybody here in Asheville. Yeah, it's uh it's been my best version of what the future might have held if we just committed to doing a season. I feel that we've exceeded that. Yeah. I'm yeah. so uh, thankful. If you've made it this far in this episode, thank you. If you've listened to any other episode, thank you. If this episode points you to some of the other ones, um, that is awesome. We're excited. Uh, please check out these businesses. Please reach out to our guests uh, and support them and use them and be uh, their customers. We give them all gigantic thumbs up. Um, What a great first season. So to transition, our next episode, next Tuesday, 
will be episode one of season two. I'm so excited. Yeah, so we, we have, we're kicking off season two next Tuesday. Um, it will just be an introductory episode. And then after that, we will be jumping into some really, really exciting interviews. Mm. Um, this is yeah, like, a- this is really cool. Like we have some, you know, big names big in names. Asheville. Some, yeah. some important companies that I'm sure you guys will know, um, as well as, you know, some of the, you know, lesser known, but I think still uh, powerful and inspiring mm-hmm. uh, folk that are here in Asheville. Uh, so yeah, we're we're super excited. We can't wait to share with you the you know next ten interviews and fifteen or twenty episodes. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort it's I would use the word bananas. <laughs> Season two yeah. for for me right now feels bananas. It's like crazy. So uh, as a small little uh way hopefully to share the excitement to uh get you excited uh we when we first moved here uh sarah went to a really beautiful art fair thing yeah i went to the show and tell pop-up show i think it's called mm-hmm. um and in, in downtown Asheville. i can't remember the location of where it was but it was really cool they had a bunch of local artists from all over Asheville and also north carolina um, all sorts of products from clothes to art to jewelry, all this stuff. And I bought this map of Asheville. It's very abstract looking. Um, and it was by Parmar Media. I, I think they're located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Anyways, they make these really cool, you know, abstract maps of all different places. But they have some really cool ones in Asheville. And so we thought as a way to count down to season two we would do a giveaway of two of their maps we have one uh, slightly bigger one I think it's like 11 by 14 and then one smaller one 8 by 10 Um, we'll share some photos of those below as well but we're going to be giving away two of those maps so there will be two winners as we count down to season two all the links for the things that you would need to do are going to be in our show notes and uh, on our website and in Instagram and anywhere that you would see this or interact with this, uh, we will do our best to make it very easy to participate in that giveaway. Yes. Um, and one thing to note is that this will only be around for like seven days <laughs> as we count down. Yeah. So if you um, hear this in the future, yeah. uh, also go to our website, but you know, you probably won't win the map. Yes. Yes. Cool. So uh, to conclude, I think it's going to be interesting to see how long this episode is. I think it's about an hour right now. Um, But so thank you for making it this far in the episode. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode this season, we would love it if you could uh, follow the link in the show notes that says like, review this podcast. Uh, It'll send you to Apple Podcasts. That is like the home for leaving reviews. As of this moment, we have 11 uh, total reviews, and we're averaging five stars, and we are so grateful for all of those. It helps make us show up when people type Asheville or business, um, and so taking the minute to do that means the world to us. Thank you in advance. Awesome. Anything else? Yeah. Um, so the call to action for the for the giveaway is going to be to go to the website. But as always, if you 
or someone you know could be a good interview guest for this podcast. We're absolutely always open to making connections in town, uh, meeting new people. Uh, There is a very easy way to suggest either yourself or someone else, and that is on makingitinashville.com slash podcast. Um, Otherwise, you know, we'll see you in season two. Awesome. Sarah, episode 18? Something like that. We're not even counting anymore. It doesn't matter. This is a bonus episode. So many episodes now. We're we're in season two. <laughs> High five, boo. High five.